Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Clouds and rain in the area. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, as the first presidential debate between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden is tonight, I'll speak with Emory University professor and author Drew Weston about the psychology of American voters. When you, when you think about what, what it is that makes us care about something, most of the time it comes down to some version of survival or our status. It comes down to our kids and our kin, family, or it comes down to our, um, our love of community and care for community. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, the latest data from the State Department of Public Health, which indicates 6,961 COVID-19-related deaths have been reported since March, and there's been 315,281 confirmed cases. Also, 28,197 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,194 were ICU admissions. This is always according to the State Department of Public Health. And joining me now to discuss the latest coronavirus news nationwide and here locally is WABE health reporter and host of the widely popular podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, thanks for taking the time as always. Thanks, Rose. I don't know if widely popular is a fair assessment, but I appreciate it. Let me ask you this. How many times do folks come up to you and say, hey, Sam, did you wash your hands? And you go, sit down. My personal interactions with people are so few these days that I have not had that happen to me yet. I hear you. I hear you. Well, let's go back for a moment. Not that far. Um, actually, uh, President Donald Trump announced at a press conference yesterday, I'm going to play a clip here, that the federal government is expanding testing capabilities nationwide. Take a listen. Today, I'm pleased to report that we're announcing our plan to distribute 150 million Abbott rapid point of care tests in the coming weeks very, very soon. This will be more than double the number of tests already performed. And here's our plan. 50 million tests will go to protect the most vulnerable communities, which we've always promised to do, including 18 million for nursing homes, 15 million for assisted living facilities, 10 million for home health and hospice uh, care, hospice care agencies, and nearly 1 million for historically black colleges and universities and also Tribal Nation Colleges. What do you make of that, Sam? 50 million tests. I mean, I think this is uh, something to note, right? First, it's important to know these are antigen tests. So the president there said rapid tests. The idea with an antigen test is that they're a lot quicker than kind of our 
tests that we've been relying on throughout most of the pandemic, but they're also a little bit less accurate, right? And there are some people who see a world where these kinds of rapid tests are used to help people make decisions about what they do each day, right? So in this situation, Rose, you or I would have access to this kind of quick test that could tell us, should I go to work today? Should I go to the store today? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the president threw out some big numbers there. Georgia's initial allotment is going to be about 200,000 tests. Um, that's what the governor's office says the state's going to be getting pretty soon. Um, that's a number that's a lot smaller than those big numbers the president was throwing out. Um, mm -hmm. Just for a little bit of context here, 200,000 is only a little bit bigger than all the kids that are in the, in the Gwinnett County School District, <laughs> which uh, I, I think is important for context there. The governor's office says we are going to get about 3 million tests down the road. But if we think about how these tests are going to be used, right, you don't just test someone once and then they have a clean bill of health for the rest of their lives. You want to be able to do this frequently. Three million tests isn't a ton, right? And so it also depends on where these tests are actually deployed. Um, the governor's office says more details on that will be uh, made clear in the coming days. And we should note earlier in the year, there were some issues with Abbott's testing devices. Now, I don't know if it was the the antigen test or it was a rapid, but I'm assuming they got all that figured out, correct? What do you know? You know, that was my first thought, Rose. Um, Abbott, the lab, the diagnostic company that is producing these tests that are being distributed, people might remember they had an issue with one of their rapid tests. I think it was a different kind of test. It wasn't an antigen test. Mm -hmm. They had a rapid test deployed. Um, there was one here in Atlanta at Georgia Tech, I believe. It had an issue with false negatives, essentially telling people they were not sick when they were, which if you think about how this disease spreads, that's a pretty bad thing. Um, that's something yeah. that the FDA uh, was investigating. I believe that investigation is still ongoing, but this is a different kind of test from Abbott. Um, so I guess we'll just have to see what the false negative rates are. Again, we do understand that antigen tests are less sensitive then our kind of gold standard, this is the PCR test that people might have heard about. But the idea is that there's a trade-off there. It's less accurate, but it's quicker, right? And it allows people to maybe make quicker decisions about what they're going to do with their lives. Mm -hmm. Well, and speaking of the White House and their most recent White House task force report, now the latest actually ranked Georgia 23rd in the country for new cases. Here in Georgia, Sam, it looked like after stalling out for a bit last week, the state's coronavirus metrics are improving. So talk to our audience about the numbers that we're seeing and how Georgia is doing compared to other states. Yeah, so Georgia does seem to be doing better as of late. I think last time we talked, Rose, maybe a week or so ago, some of our metrics were kind of stalling out. Um, but the kind of positive movement that we had seen prior to that is continuing. And we actually got our hands on the latest report from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. This was put together on Sunday. We obtained it today on Tuesday. And the state of Georgia has actually left the red zone for new cases. That's the worst category. Um, we also beat the national average for new cases for every 100,000 people um, by just a little bit in that report. So our numbers are getting better. Um, these rankings, though, of course, are always relative. So Georgia is 23rd in the country. 
as of Sunday when it comes to new cases. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, depending on how much better or worse other states are doing, our ranking could change relative to that, right? And the pandemic isn't monolithic. As of late, we've seen other states in the country, specifically uh, states in the Midwest, where the pandemic really seems to be taking off there mm -hmm. in ways that it hasn't in other, other parts of the country earlier this year. So, you know, some states do worse. That makes Georgia look better just by comparison, but it does look like a number of Georgia's metrics are improving. Well, after last week when we had the milestone in this country of 200,000 deaths, but now as of the time of this broadcast around the globe, we're looking at 1 million worldwide and we're looking at the United States and then Brazil and India and these nations continue to have an, an escalating percentage of confirmed cases. What do you make of this, Sam, that we are now at a global death toll of one million people? You know, it's just kind of striking to think that uh, this time last year, we didn't know that this virus existed, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, the numbers, if you really stop to think about not only the one million people, but the one million families affected by this, they're, they're pretty staggering. It's also important to know that there's a general consensus that our death counts are undercounts, right? So these are 100 million deaths that we've confirmed. There are other deaths that we don't know about potentially from COVID-19. Then you even have to think about kind of the secondary and tertiary deaths, people, you know, deaths of despair, people who have found themselves locked in their homes, maybe without a job, who turn to substances that exacerbate health issues, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the impact, I think we don't have the ability to wrap our hands fully around it. When I hear these numbers to think about in the US how there's still a vast majority of us who haven't been exposed to this disease. Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention last week said that his agency estimates upwards of 90% of the US population has not been infected. And so if we think about this 200,000 number here in the US, that's only with 10% of the population roughly having been exposed to this thing. And mm -hmm. so if that many people are still vulnerable, it's, it's not hard to imagine that number going way up. Mm. And Sam, you recently spoke with Dr. Georges Benjamin. Now he's the head of the American Public Health Association. And this is where we get to the intersection of COVID-19 and politics. He's calling for a quote, reboot of how the country is handling the pandemic. What specifically is the issue here? I think the issue is people in the public health world like Dr. Benjamin have said over the course of this pandemic that no outcome is inevitable. We're talking about these really big numbers today, 200,000 deaths, at least in the US, a million worldwide. That's a big number. Those are big numbers, but we still have the ability to provide to create good outcomes here. And I think that's what Dr. Benjamin is really calling for here. We don't need to think these numbers are a sign that we should give up. This is far from over and we really have the ability to make things better. So kind of the biggest thing that he and his group are calling in their letter they put out last week is really this separation of politics from public health. We've seen a bunch of notable examples recently of how President Trump and others in his administration have really tried to interfere with public health messaging coming from agencies like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. And Dr. Benjamin, and quite frankly, a lot of public health experts are worried about what that's going to do to the faith that people have in, in public health messaging. And he thinks that's kind of square one. We need to decouple those things so people truly can trust that when they hear a message from a public health official, that that message is not political in any way. It's purely meant to improve health outcomes. 
And I'm sure we'll hear a lot of this uh, during tonight's presidential debate. Meanwhile, one issue that might come up is about a vaccine. Now we're hearing this vaccine may not even be available for people till way in, into next year. So what are folks like Dr. Benjamin and others, Sam, what are they saying about are we on track to get a vaccine anytime within the next 12 months? You know, Rose, I, I think there's maybe two ways to think about this. Progress on this vaccine is happening probably quicker than progress on any other vaccine has ever happened here in the country. And that's something that public health experts are really in agreement about, that we are moving incredibly fast to get something to market. Um, that is very different from having a vaccine that is widely available to everyone, you and me. Um, you know, we do have a number of vaccines in development that are in the later stage of clinical trials that look for not only safety of a vaccine, but effectiveness. Um, Dr. Benjamin's take was that we should know the results of those trials early next year. Other public health officials like Dr. Tony Fauci uh, have pushed that timeline a little bit closer to the present, saying that we should know results before the end of the year. But then again, we have to scale up production. We have to think about getting these vaccines, which are very sensitive items. They have to be stored and handled very particularly, very mm -hmm. specifically, getting them out to a broad number of people. Realistically, the timelines that we're hearing from folks is that it's gonna be into next year, into next summer, potentially into next summer and fall before they're widely available. Then you have to think about mistrust in a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Then you have to think about the fact that people just kind of aren't used to getting vaccinated for things, um, you know, and so, the, the thing that Dr. Benjamin told me, which kind of struck me yesterday, is his take was that the world that we're living in now is probably not going to look too different after a vaccine. We're still going to have to wear masks. We're still going to have to think about socially, you know, physically distancing ourselves from people. His take was it could be two years from now before mm -hmm. things really start to look like the world before the pandemic as much as they do at all. You know, I think that the changes that, that, that we're going through, um, some of them aren't going to be reversed. And finally, Sam, well, we're in that part of the year where the holidays are coming up. First Halloween, then Thanksgiving, and of course, you know, all the, the biggie in December. But listen, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention last week releasing a guidance on how to celebrate safely. Halloween's going to be a little different this year. It is. And these were guidelines that kind of made some some waves in the uh, I don't know if you're on public health Twitter like I am, but, you know, even experts outside of the CDC kind of had some questions here. But <laughs> the CDC's guidance is that trick or treating, as we normally think of it, is a high risk activity. Mm. It's not hard to think about that, especially in neighborhoods where trick or treat gets really crowded. You know, a bunch of kids gathering on someone's doorstep, reaching into a communal bowl. Um, you know, people packed on sidewalks. It's not hard to imagine that being a high-risk situation. So CDC says, try to avoid it if you can. They also say costume masks are not effective at uh, slowing the spread of disease in the same way that a cloth mask is. Mm. So don't assume that just because your kid is, you know, has a mask on that they can't be transmitting the disease. Um, the CDC though does say that there are ways that we can do things safely. If we want to think about kind of big social gatherings like Thanksgiving, um, you know, the guidance they have for, for that is the guidance they've been giving out all summer for gatherings over different holidays. Try to do it outside. Try not to be around a bunch of people who aren't in your immediate household. Mm -hmm. Be really aware of how actively the virus is spreading in your community as you're assessing your risk, you know, if you're high risk, maybe skip out on stuff this year. So yeah. 
you know, I think it's important to know that, yes, the holidays are going to look different. But honestly, Rose, I think it's more helpful for people to focus on not what's going to be different, but the things that we can still do, mm -hmm. right? The CDC does not say cancel Thanksgiving. The CDC says, how can we adapt Thanksgiving to this extraordinary time to make sure that people stay as safe as possible? You know, for me, someone who over the course of this pandemic, it is not hard to look at everything bad. I have a tendency to do that. For the holidays, I'm trying to look at the ways that we can still gather and think about what we can be thankful for. Sam, you need my grandmother's sweet potato pie to make it all good. It is the best pie. I will, I will, I will die on that hill. I will die on the sweet potato pie hill. You are a good man. Sam Whitehead is WABE's health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam, as always, thanks for the update. We really appreciate it. Our listeners do as well. Yeah, thanks, Rose. Good to be with you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Well, tonight is the first presidential debate between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. And just think, combined, they've only raised more than $2 billion in their campaigning. Now, here's the breakdown. According to FEC filings as of September 20th, Joe Biden and the DNC, well, they've raised about $990 million. President Trump and the RNC, $1 billion and $33 million. Yes. Now, do voters care about how much these two have raised? Or better question, what exactly do voters care about when it comes to the Big Tuesday in November? Are they fueled by these issues or their emotions behind the issues? Confused? Well, let's welcome to the program Drew Weston, Emory University professor of psychology and psychiatry and author of The Political Brain, The Role of Emotion in Deciding the Fate of the Nation. And this is an era that Professor Weston has studied for decades now. Professor Weston, welcome. Thank you very much. Before we dissect the message of Trump and, and Biden, let's begin here because there was an article published just a few months ago. Uh, the author was a gentleman named Brent Buchanan, and he, and he wrote, quote, campaigns need to be paying attention to what voters are feeling, not just thinking. There's truth in that statement, Professor? There's absolute truth in that, in that statement. The uh if you look at the, uh, at the at the elections going back from 1948 through through the present, and you look at what are the best predictors of people's behavior, voting behavior, it is at the top of the list. It is uh, their feelings towards the parties. Mm -hmm. The second is their feelings towards the candidates. Third is their feelings towards the candidates' personal attributes like honesty and competence, that kind of thing. Their fourth is their feelings about the issues. And the very fifth is what they know about the issues. And what mm -hmm. they know about the issues is is way down uh, down the line. It counts for about 1% of people's voting. And that's something you point out in your book, although it's been nearly 
12 years since it's been published, but the core of this is, and I'm quoting you here, in politics, when reason and emotion collide, emotion invariably wins. So here's a question then for a listener who's driving around saying, okay, professor, why? Why is that? Why does that happen? It, it, all, dep- it all really comes from how we evolved. Uh, when we evolved, we were, um, you know, we, we evolved actually to, to, to link reason and emotion, uh, but our emotions essentially picked up they give us the fuel for, for what we're going to do, and our reason sort of leads us in the direction of how we're going to get there. So, so for example, you know, when we were when we were uh, when we were developing, when we were evolving, uh, what mattered most was was the insure, ensuring our survival and ensuring the protection of our kin, particularly our closest kin. And then third, what what evolved was our uh, our concern for uh, people in our group. Uh, because we had we had uh, mutual what's called reciprocal altruism, or you know, essentially we took care of each other, and by everybody doing that, uh, that that increased everybody's chances of surviving and their families surviving, and then being able to have kids and those kids surviving. So when you when you think about what what it is that makes us care about something, it is most of the time it comes down to some version of survival or our status. Uh, it comes down to our uh, our kids and our kin, family, or it comes down to our um, our love of community and care for community, and um, and for uh, concerns about people who aren't uh, aren't pitching in, like uh, like when we hear that the president only paid seven hundred fifty dollars in taxes, mm-hmm. that raises concerns, um, or you know concerns about uh, um, about about uh, protection. Well, let's go back a little bit because I can understand someone saying. Okay, but let, let's go back, you mentioned 1948, but even decades before, I think it was, uh, was it Calvin Coolidge who was the first president to have an address with the radio, or I have the radio installed in the White House. That was in the, what, the 20s? So one could say, well, technology, hasn't that played a part in how candidates or presidents uh, are able to play on those emotions? You think about the fireside chats with President Roosevelt. People felt like they were connected to him. Like, he's really talking to my household. So what role does technology play in this and being able to get this message out from these candidates, whether now, we, can you imagine if Calvin Coolidge had a Twitter account? I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> threw that it out there. <laughs> <laughs> it, it plays a huge role. And in fact, you know, you often see that presidents who harness that technology to not only get their message out, but get to, but get for voters to get to know them or to feel like they know them and have the sense of knowing what they feel, what their values are, do their values mesh with theirs. Uh, you start, I mean, really starts with uh, with FDR using radio, just as you're describing. Mm-hmm. I and mean, those fireside chats, my mom was born in 1930 and she remembers her family huddled around the, the big brown radio mm-hmm. that they had back then. And they would listen to him because he was like their father. I mean, he was, you know, he was, he, and she, she just, uh, to this day, idolizes Franklin Roosevelt in part because of that, in part because of the way he made them feel that there was someone there who was fighting to make them safe and to, to put food in their stomach, but also because um, he actually did, he actually followed through. And you know, I think what, what we're what we're what we've seen over the years 
is that candidates who can connect with people at that emotional level using the, the new technologies of the time. Eisenhower was actually the first to harness television. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Kennedy beat Nixon in a debate because of, of just the way he came across versus Nick, the way Nixon came across. So it's not so much what the candidates are saying, but it's how they're saying or phrasing their message and then the delivery medium that they're using, whether it's Twitter or, you know, Facebook or, or what have you. I mean, there certainly are voters who who uh, who are single issue voters, voters who say, if this candidate isn't pro-life, I'm not voting for. Uh, there are there are certainly those. And, and you know, we're seeing that around the around the um, the new Supreme Court nominee and the, the right versus the left galvanizing around that. Uh, it typically voters on the right are more likely to be galvanized by a, a, a Roe v. Wade decision. Um, you know, voters that although two thirds of Americans support maintaining Roe v. Wade the way it is, um, the support is weaker uh, uh, from those in the middle and on the left uh, than it is from those on the right. Well, so and it's the uh, it's really the it's really the power of emotion behind it that is is it's, it's the passion behind it. Uh, that that is making uh, is making Trump feel like this is a winning Trump and, and McConnell feel like this is a real winning issue for them, even though only one third of voters are on their side on this, which is kind of a striking phenomenon. So playing on the emotions of the voter, does that mean certain trigger words or phrasing that they evoke a particular emotion within that voter? Absolutely, and and, and I what what I guess it's important to say is that. You know, there are, there are um, you know, there's kind of two two axes, if you think about it. If you think about one axis going up and one axis going going mm -hmm. across, like from uh, uh, from geometry from ninth grade. Mm -hmm. You know, one axis is from 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 the like from the from the if you're, if you're sitting at a table from the bottom of the table going up is falsehood to truth of the of your statement. The other mm -hmm. axis going from left to right uh, is how emotionally compelling it is from not compelling to really compelling. And someone like, I mean, Donald Trump is a good example. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be slamming Democrats in a minute, but I'll start with slamming Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is, is a, a, a prototypical politician who's in that quadrant of um, highly emotionally compelling, but untrue. I mean, he'll say anything, but he'll, he'll say it in a way that makes a lot of people feel it. Now, a lot of us obviously don't feel it, but a lot of people feel it. Uh, and he, and he'll use trigger words like I mean um, like when the when when protesters started to use on the left the phrase defund the police mm -hmm. and when the Minneapolis uh, City Council picked up on it uh, it was obvious that he was going to use that in an ad and and he ran exactly the ad, ad that I. I I predicted he was going to run that, that basically said Democrats want to defund the police. Mm -hmm. And then he showed pictures of the riots. And this is what happens when you defund the police. Now, that is, in fact, Joe, he, Joe Biden had disavowed def, the, the, the term defund the police and said, I don't want to defund the police. That's ridiculous. But I do want to I do want to reform the police. I mean, we, we can't have have black men shot in the back all the time. That's not OK. We need to reform that. But, uh, and, and do we really need, you know, somebody is uh, someone's drunk and asleep at the wheel at a Wendy's. He shouldn't end up dead out of that. You know, if you're going to do that, 
Maybe we should have sent mental health counselors there the first time. So, so phrases like that make all the difference. But then if you go to the other quadrant, what Democrats do, and the, my, my worry, frankly, as a, as a, a, a um, forewarned as forearmed, uh, I do consult to, to Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that um, my concern for, for tonight is that uh, Joe Biden has been, has been prepped, as we've heard, by getting briefing books in front of them over and over and over again, trying to stuff a bunch of facts at a 78-year-old man's head. Well, you know, that, that's not a great strategy. I hope that's not what they're doing, because that's what Kerry did. That's what Gore did. Uh, you know, that's what Hillary Clinton did. And compare that style to what um, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton did. You know, they, they weren't there in the debate to say, uh, to speak the truth in a, by, by bl- blowing out a bunch of facts at you, because no one's interested in your fact collection. What they were interested in doing was, number one, make an emotional connection with the voter. Mm-hmm. Number two, picking a few key facts that they spoke in a compelling way. Uh, and number three, leaving people with a sense of hope. So I didn't mean to go on so long, but my point no, is that, that Democrats, Democrats often think that, um, that there's some kind of contradiction between speaking the truth and, speak, and speaking in an emotionally compelling way. And so what they often do is they speak the truth in an emotionally uncompelling way. And what you really want to do is you want to speak the truth on either side. You want to speak the truth in a compelling way because there's a compelling way to tell the truth from both value systems of the right and the left. You don't have to tell lies about it. And you also don't have to. So, you know, the Republicans problem is they tend to tell lies about it. And the Democrats problem is they tend to, to speak the truth, but to bore the hell out of people. So they have they, you know, they're not interested in what they're saying and they're not feeling a connection. Uh, to either the party or to the person. If you just join us, I'm joined by Drew Weston. He's an Emory University professor of psychology and psychiatry and author of the book, The Political Brain, The Role of Emotion in Deciding the Fate of the Nation. So, Professor, after all of you said that, and I know there are some listeners saying, okay, well then, I consider myself to be an informed voter. How can I not allow their emotions to influence my choice? Or... Is it almost kind of impossible? I, I would say it is neither possible nor a good thing. And uh, what you don't want is, I mean, so, okay, so here's why I'd say it is, is if you think about, I say this all the time on, on, uh, in conversations with political leaders, mm-hmm. when they start talking about the reasons, you know, how, how it's all about reason. And, and uh, you know, we're in an era in which, emotion is being demagogued. You know, the one, the, 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 you know, we evolved to have our emotions guide us towards things that are good for us and our families and our communities and away from or to fight things that are bad for us and our, and, and our families and our communities. And that in general leads us in, in the right direction. But it is possible periodically to have a leader uh, who uh, can fool most of the people enough of the time uh, to get elected. And when you see that in a con man, uh, that's when that's when emotions uh, lead us really astray. So, you know, most of the time you actually if you think of it, what's the difference between someone who's conservative and someone who, who is uh, pro- progressive? It's not just that they believe different things. It's that they care about different things. They care about different people. Like, why should I care 
um, that we have a just society in which it doesn't matter what, uh, what, what the color of your skin is, or it doesn't matter what your national origin is, or if my kids have, a, have some advantages because they're white, why should I care about uh, kids who are black? Well, you know, there's nothing rational about that. I mean, I guess, you know, you could make up a rational story about, well, in another 100 years <laughs> or, or mm-hmm. you know, another, another 20 years, you know, et cetera. But it's not about, it's, it is about, in fact, it's about our feelings about it. And if you don't have that feeling, um, you're not going to be guided in any direction by reason. But in the space that we're in now, a pandemic, these social justice calls that are out there, obviously it's a political year. You're saying that the candidates, President Trump, Vice President Joe Biden, do you, are you saying they need to change the way then they talk about either the pandemic or racism and that could absolutely. sway a voter? Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. Um, so to give you an example, um, uh, Democrats frequently use the word systemic racism. Uh, I actually counted the number of times they did it in their in their uh, in their uh, can, over the four days of their convention. And on one night of the convention, they used the term something like 15 times. Never once did they define it. Now, what the average white person hearing that, uh, first of all, the average person, I, I teach at Emory, and, and, and I have good students, and I was teaching a class on a, a small seminar on the psychology of political persuasion mm-hmm. in American electoral politics. And I asked my students, I had about 18, I did this about three or four terms in a row. What's what's systemic racism? What does that mean? And you know what? Maybe two of them, two of them took a stab at it and had some idea. But think about it for a second. The average American doesn't know what systemic means. And I'm not ragging on the average American here. I'm just saying, I mean, the average person cannot distinguish between systemic and systematic. Like, what's the difference between those two things? And I mean the average educated person. I mean, I've had I've had JDs and PhDs say to me, uh, Drew, what, what's a quid pro quo in the middle of the impeachment hearing? And it's like I wrote a I wrote a piece for the Hill, and it, and and the the either the title or the first sentence was, "Note to Democrats: Americans don't speak Latin." You know, <laughs> call it call it extortion, call it bribery, call it something that they know. And Nancy Pelosi. You know, wisely went to calling it calling it bribery. But if you say something like systemic racism, uh, and you say it over and over, it's um, all that white voters hear is, "I'm being called a racist," and they get defensive, and they don't know what the allegation against them is. You know, it's like, "Well, you call me a racist, but what did I do?" I actually had a I had someone say to me uh, fairly recently, who's a really honest, moderate voter, right in the center. She said to me, "Drew, you know." I, uh, I keep hearing about the systemic racism thing. And I went to one of my black girlfriends. I said, can you tell me what it is that I'm doing? Because if I'm doing something racist, I want to change it. <laughs> and her friend said, said, you're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> and, but the fact that the, the, the reality is it would be so much more powerful. You should have asked me because I told her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can tell her what it is. Yeah, without a problem. But, exactly. But... <laughs> And, and Professor, as we wrap up, what's your response? Because I can hear someone saying, well, look, at the end of the day, Professor, do you agree that folks also, they can research and fact check these candidates too, or they just don't want to do it, or they're being lazy? Because look, in 2020, 
after 2020, if you still don't know what systemic racism is or the definition of it, or if you're still having issues trying to wrap your your brain around all the inequalities and the disparities that have existed for centuries, <laughs> centuries, then you're not a well-informed voter to begin with, and you have no intentions on being one anyway. Is that fair for me to say as a journalist? <laughs> I don't know. Someone will send me an email, but hey, it's 2020. All things are happening right now. I mean, what do you respond to that? Someone says, look, shouldn't they just, look, come on, y'all. Educate yourselves. Regardless of yeah. the political affiliation, educate yourselves. Do your research. You got the Internet. Y'all at home because of the pandemic. So come on. Now, I, I, I'd say two things to that. One is that we are now in an era where there's uncharted territory, uh, where there is so much false information that's getting out there. The first problem is we are in an era of disinformation where it is really hard for voters. You'll hear voters say things with just certainty and they'll say, well, I read this. And they actually thought they were getting informed, but they're being disinformed. So that's the first problem. But you know what voters are really looking for is they're looking, they're looking to answer two questions. And if they would stick to these two questions, they're not that really that irrational. One is, does this person understand and care about people like me? Mm -hmm. And the second is, does this person share my values? And if you think about it, those aren't really irrational questions to ask. Those are the questions that educated voters ask. You want to know, does this person share my values? Do they care about people who are like me, but who don't necessarily look like me? Uh, if they don't, like I look at, again, I, I've said it before, I'm, I, I consult the Democrats. You know, I look at Donald Trump and I say, he cares about only a segment of America. And I believe that Americans are all Americans, regardless of the color of, the skin, of their skin, regardless of their national origin. So he doesn't care about people like me because people like me include, includes people who don't look like me. That immediately wipes him off the slate for me. I don't care what his issue positions is, are because I know his issue positions follow from those values or from that lack of values. And so if people focus on those two questions, which are gut level questions, I, don't, I think that makes them pretty good voters by and large. Drew Weston, Emory University professor of psychology and psychiatry and author of The Political Brain, The Role of Emotion in Deciding the Fate of the Nation. Professor, compelling conversation. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. On this program, you all know we've talked about food insecurity during the pandemic and how nonprofits and local organizations and businesses are trying to address this issue. But most recently, I spoke with Letitia Springer, who launched Free 99 Fridge. It's a mutual aid organization to fight hunger. And actually, earlier today on NPR, there was a segment about this. Springer's organization is installing community refrigerators throughout the city. It's where people can take food from the fridge at no cost. She said this when I asked her about the work that's being done to fight food insecurity right here in Atlanta. So I think there are a lot of initiatives that are taking place in our communities right now that are helping to kind of end this food insecurity and abolish the food apartheid that's happening in our city. 
and urban gardens or community gardens is one of those things. And make no mistake, I think it's gonna take multiple efforts and initiatives to make this happen. Like this runs really deep and is interconnected to a lot of other things, not just food. And so I think it's going to take the combined efforts of many initiatives to make that happen. But lots of good work is happening in our city around, around this area. Well, now on to another initiative with the goal is to feed 1,500 families. It's a partnership among the Atlanta Community Food Bank, the city of Hayfield, and Wells Fargo Bank. And joining me now to talk more about this is Chad Gregory. He's a Regent Bank president for Wells Fargo. Kyle Wade, president and CEO of the Atlanta Community Food Bank. He's been on this show many times. Todd Nichols, director of Hayfield Parks and Recreation. Chad, Kyle, Todd, thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Morning. Thanks, Rose, for having us on today. Not a problem. I want to begin here because I was reading this report from the Brookings Institution, and it offered this. The estimates of income and poverty for 2020 will not be available until September of 2021. But what is clear is that COVID-19's economic impact on vulnerable populations runs deep and wide. Chad, I'll start with you. Your thoughts on this? Well, COVID-19 has had a devastating impact on a lot of individuals and families in our community. And we're just trying to figure out a way to help. And so what we've done is um, really work and transform 20 of our locations across the country. So these are administrative buildings, these are parking lots, branches, operation centers, to turn them into food distribution centers. We're just trying to make it easy. So when families, individuals drive up, they can pop the trunk, we can provide them with groceries. And really we have a goal of providing 50 million meals to families in need. And so we know that during the pandemic, it has uh, created a lot of financial instability for a lot of individuals and families and uh, making tough decisions with uh, food and shelter and other basic needs. And we just hope some of these small efforts can really help during a very tough time for a lot of families and help them in need. Well, let me move to Kyle, because Kyle, you of all people, your organization, you all are well aware for a long time now of the need for food. You heard what Chad said about the pandemic pretty much exasperating what was already an issue for so many households, not here in Atlanta, but throughout the nation. Kyle, your thoughts on this moment that we're in with this pandemic and food insecurity. Sure, and Rose, thanks again for uh, shining a light on this uh, problem in our community and really a problem across the country. As Chad just said, COVID-19 has had a dramatic impact uh, on um, increasing levels of food insecurity uh, across uh, the Atlanta region and and more broadly. We think there are 50% more households uh, struggling with food insecurity than there were prior to the outbreak of the pandemic. Uh, That means that more than a million people across the 29 counties served by the Atlanta Community Food Bank are often struggling to get enough food. We've certainly been able to grow our output to the community at the the Atlanta Community Food Bank. We've increased our weekly food distribution uh, by more than 60%. And over these last six months, Uh, We've provided uh, already uh, about 45 million meals Mm -hmm. uh, to people uh, in need across our community. Our ability to do that is a function of the partnerships that we've been able to build with the private sector, with the public sector, with nonprofits, getting distribution points stood up 
so that we can more effectively target those communities that have been particularly hard hit by this crisis. I think it's important to say that the challenges that these families face were already present. Mm -hmm. This vulnerability was already present prior to the crisis, and the crisis has just amplified that. And so the the families that were struggling before uh, are struggling now at an even deeper way. And this this, uh, increased impact has in particular really affected communities of color uh, and other uh, immigrant communities, other communities that were already facing higher levels of vulnerability prior to the crisis. Todd, what can you tell us about what's taking place in Hapeville? Have you all seen an increase in households needing assistance? I'm just curious about your region. Yes, um, we've already been doing uh, some projects. We started years ago doing the Toys for Tots, and the number that we see now coming in has tripled. Not only do you see the lower the lower income families, you're also seeing middle class mm-hmm. uh, families that needs to help as well. We've been doing uh, business with Atlanta Community Food Bank for the last five months now, and we've already distributed over a quarter of a million pounds of food. You see everything from lower class income families. You see $75,000 vehicles come through here, and they're all just very appreciative of getting the help. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a big need uh, within the community and. I appreciate the work that the Atlanta Community Food Bank does and just very grateful for partnering with Wells Fargo as well. Chad, let's go back to Wells Fargo for a moment. These programs have already launched or they're already underway in other areas of the nation. How did all this come about, though? We've been in the past, we've turned our retail branches into food collection um, centers. We have 150 locations in Metro Atlanta. We have uh, 5,000 locations across the country. Um, But in this pandemic, the need is there. And as your previous speaker shared earlier, um, it takes a village. It takes all of us. Um, Todd was sharing with me yesterday as we were kind of volunteering and helping out families. Um, we're doing this event to reach directly out to those families and individuals in need. Well, Todd and his Hateville team has been doing this every week since uh, four or five, six months ago. And Kyle and his team, we've been partnering with them for a year. So I think what we found is there was a big need. We have redirected even at a company level, over $175 million just to help with food and shelter and and those families in need because we're trying to um, react and help and adjust based on how difficult this pandemic has been. Well, let's take our listeners through how this will work, and and either one of you can jump in here on this. So there will be specific Wells Fargo banks where folks can drive in and pop the trunk, they will just be given some foods. How it works? We've had four dates in the facility over here in Hateville. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've already, we've done our second one yesterday. We have two more coming up on October the 12th and October the 19th, and it starts at 2.30. Line normally starts around 12 o'clock. Uh, really? What happens is the uh, the food bank shows up with the truck. They unload all of the uh, pallets and everything. My team breaks down the pallets, and we prepare for 300 to 400 families. And uh, cars line up. And we have someone asking to open the doors, either you put it in the back door or pop the trunk. And it's just an assembly line. He just moved down the line. You put it in and just say, God bless. Have a great day. Chad took part of it yesterday. And I was I was I was happy he was out there. It's a fun time. We're trying to just really make it a fun environment. But Todd and his team in Hateville, from an execution standpoint, took a lot of time on preparation gets everything prepared, but literally you've got a line of cars, hundreds of cars that are coming in. 
Um, and we're asking, do you have one family? Do you have two families? Do you have three families? And based on that, there are different stages. We say, you know, pull off to the next tent and we give them their groceries based on the number of families they have, no questions asked. And as Todd mentioned, we've got two more dates coming up on October 12th and 19th. And it was just a great, great experience to be a part of that with those families yesterday. And of course, the food is being provided by the Atlanta Community Food Bank. Uh, Cal, this is something that you all do all the time. You all are part of initiatives like this. Let me shift for a moment. How are you all doing? Because now I I imagine you've seen a huge increase in the demand. Uh, Absolutely. You know, I think what we've seen, as I, I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, you know, about a 50% increase in the food insecure population. We've grown our food distribution uh, by more than 60%. Uh, we're distributing now on a weekly basis around 2.3 or 2.4 million pounds of food uh, every week. Um, and, uh, and, and doing that across the 29 counties uh, that we serve. Uh, we get that food out to the community uh, through a network of partners. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got partners who were with us prior to the pandemic, close to 600 partners uh, who get food from us and then distribute it in the local community. In addition to those uh, traditional partners, during the pandemic, we've uh, stood up partnerships with other uh, uh, groups uh, like cities, like Haightville, the city of South Fulton, city of East Point, city of Atlanta. Uh, we're working with counties, DeKalb County, Gwinnett County, uh, Cobb County. We're working with schools and school districts. We're working with um, industry uh, like Wells Fargo, but we've also got a great, great partnership with the Hotel and Lodging Association mm-hmm. just to find as many distribution points as we can uh, across the community uh, so that we can get food to those places where people really need it. Uh, and so for us, you know, it's been a complicated environment. Oh, we've had to adjust the way we operate, the a type of distribution that we're doing with Wells Fargo and Haightville, where we're, people are driving through and getting food put in their trunks. Um, you know, that's a socially distanced way of doing it. And uh, it's helped us uh, continue to get food out in a way that keeps people safe. Uh, we're not using volunteers right now in our building mm-hmm. um, to uh, minimize the risk of an infection. And so, so uh, I think it's just been a really challenging environment. We've been blessed with tremendous support from the community and from our food suppliers to be able to meet the need. Uh, But we think this is a long-term challenge. What happens after these next two dates? You know, I tell you, we're responding to the needs. We, we, I agree with uh, Kyle. Uh, We've had a long-term partnership with Atlanta food bank for a decade and it's going to be an ongoing need. We're, we're continuing to redeploy resources, um, contributions, um, partnerships, nonprofits, um, we're going to continue to collect food um, and we're going to add as many dates as we can. And in fact, we started off with with 15 locations across the country that we were doing this food distribution. It's up to 20. And as of, I think, end of last week, we're up to 30 locations. So we're the demand is there and and we're having to increase um, our food distribution more and more just because more and more cities feels like it's a strong need there. So you're right. It is a. Uh, we're in it for the long term. Todd, do you we're, have to be a re- I'm sorry, Todd, do you have to be a resident of Hapefield to receive the, no, the food? No, man. We have a lot of residents um, from around our sister cities as well as different counties. Uh, we've seen tags from Bartow County. We've seen tags from uh, Alabama. So it's not just the uh, citizens of Hapefield. It's it's just the 
the communities as a whole, because this is going to be an ongoing thing. You know, I don't see this ending anytime soon. And uh, with the partnership with the Atlanta Community Food Bank, uh, we're here every Wednesday. You know, every Wednesday they can they can pull up. Uh, we start handing out food around 2:45, and we feed between 300 and 350 families every single Wednesday. And it started off as just trying to help uh, weather the storm back when the, when the pandemic first hit. Uh, but right now, I see this is something that's going to go on for a while, and uh, we don't we don't plan on stopping anytime soon. And we yeah. should note also too, if someone knows of a neighbor or a family that might not be able to get out to Hapeville, perhaps be a nice gesture to drive out and pick something up for that household. Uh, gentlemen, as we wrap the up, other thing on that point, uh, on that point, Rose, you know, uh, there are people listening to your program all, all across Metro Atlanta. Um, the partnership with Wells Fargo and the city of Hateful is a great way in which we're serving people uh, in that community. But people from other communities can find places to get help by going to the food bank's website, acfb.org. There you'll be able to put in your zip code uh, and identify a food distribution point that's uh, located. Uh, close by, you know, this is, a, uh, as we've said, a massive challenge. We think uh, food insecurity is going to be at elevated levels for many months to come. And it's going to take all of us, you know, Wells Fargo can't do it by themselves. Mm -hmm. The food bank can't do it by ourselves. We're going to all have to uh, pitch in to help ensure that our neighbors have the food they need to uh, survive and thrive in this very challenging environment. As we wrap up, I want to make sure our listeners, again, if one of you all could share the date and the time again for the next drive through to pick up the food. Sure. October the 12th from 2.30 to 4 at the Hapeville location. It's the 3579 Atlanta Avenue there in Hapeville. And then the additional date is October the 19th from 2.30 to 4 at the same address and location. You all talked about that this is an ongoing concern and issue. Do you see, though, expanding this program or extending this program for maybe just throughout the rest of October or picking it up, picking back up in November? Is that possible? It is possible. And again, we've already redirected that $175 million towards COVID-19 type initiatives. Again, we've already expanded from 20 sites across the country to 30 we already see Todd and I saw yesterday the demand. I mean, the cars never kept stopped coming. So we know the need is there and we'll continue to, to work hard at adding more sites um, and partnering with the Atlanta Food Bank. Kyle and his team is fantastic. And Todd, he had his whole team out there yesterday. So, yes, I see this only doing nothing but based on the demand, not only this year, it may even extend into next year as well. Todd and or Kyle, you want to add anything to that? Yes, um, City of Hayville, we're here every single Wednesday. Uh, food distribution begins again at 2.45 and we go until we're finished. Um, I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. As long as Kyle and Atlanta Food Bank have us, we'll be here to distribute the, the food to the community. And Kyle, you get the last word. Yeah, well, I think we are planning at the food bank, uh, you know, in the way that we're thinking about our fundraising, thinking about our food sourcing. Uh, we're planning uh, uh, to be needing to respond to this really elevated level of need uh, beyond next year. You know, I think what we anticipate is that the sort of economic uh, harm has been done and that there's going to be a lot of people who need support. So um, uh, we're working now to make sure that we have the partnerships in place on the ground to get uh, to help us get the food out to people who need it where they need it. 
Uh, we're working uh, from a fundraising side to develop the resources we need to sustain this effort over time. Uh, and we're working with our food suppliers to make sure that uh, we have a line of sight on the uh, amount of inventory we need uh, to meet the demand. But this is, this is gonna be an ongoing challenge. Uh, we're gonna have to find as many uh, solutions as possible. The lead-in that you shared was a great way to think about it. Uh, th there's not a silver bullet to this. We're just going to have to find um, as many resources as we can to meet uh, really elevated levels of food insecurity uh, for the next year. I'm optimistic we can do it, mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's going to require uh, a lot of hard work from the food bank and many other partners. Kyle Wade, President and CEO of the Atlanta Community Food Bank. I was also joined by Todd Nichols, Director of the Hapefield Parks and Recreation, and Chad Gregory, Region Bank President for Wells Fargo. Thank you all for taking the time to share this information. We'll have all this information on our website. And if someone didn't get the information, feel free to email me or call and we'll provide all that information. And we should note also that the Atlanta Community Food Bank is a regular partner with WABE on food initiatives during our pledge drive. Thank you all so much. Thank you all for what you're doing for the community. Thank you, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.